Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts, and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated as well. In this week's show, we're going to continue with the same theme from last week. I'm going to do another dive into the the, the Evergrande liquidity crisis in China and sort of the various things that are impacting China's decision-making there. Uh, there's not a lot of new news on that front. Uh, there's just some of the different puzzle pieces. So once you have the basics down of sort of what is happening here, then it's a matter of connecting the dots with various other issues that impact China's ability to make clean decisions there. Um, overall, you have um, there's sort of three breakdowns that you have. There's the economic factors, the political, and then finally the cultural factors. I personally think the political factors are driving some of the decision-making here more than maybe the, the economic or even the cultural things, which people are focusing on. But I do think it's worth focusing on all of them. And then the light item today is dedicated to one of the best things on earth, October playoff baseball. And that is one of the reasons why I'm recording so late tonight, because I was up late watching one of those. So give a shout out to that at the end. So that's the agenda for this week's show. And with that, I guess we can jump in here. So last week, I did an introduction to the whole liquidity crisis in, in China surrounding the real estate market, the, the various property companies there, and then sort of the main thing surrounding the Evergrande company and, and how that can impact us here. And so I skipped writing about all this in the newsletter. I, as I said at the top of it, I wanted to write about it, but there were still some things I was sort of watching and waiting for. Um, I'm still waiting for some of those things, but I wanted to also go through some of the the large themes that are playing out with this, because I still think this is a story that could impact um, U.S. markets and global markets as well, particularly since so much of the supply chain goes through China that if anything happens to their economy, it can have ripple effects everywhere else just because of the global supply chain and the way it is built. So I'm recording this late Sunday evening. Uh, October 17th, and some of the early reports I I saw said that we could possibly get news on whether or not Evergrande would officially at a default as early as October 18th or October 19th. So that would be Monday or Tuesday, looking forward here. At the latest, I think we'll see something on October the 23rd. Um, So that's the other date that's been floating around is when the official default date could be for the company. Uh, and they also have other coupon dates and other due dates throughout the rest of the year here. But the question is, when is the actual default for them? Uh, it's probably over this next week. Maybe it trickles into the following week. 
Uh, obviously, we'll see here. Uh, I was looking for some of the early information, and I haven't seen anything so far. Uh, I thought where we could start this week, uh, since we don't have that, is a discussion of what's likely to happen, and then into jump into some of the other aspects that that could mainly impact what China's decision-making process is going to look like here. Uh, one of the reports that came out over the weekend is that China's growth is slowing. In the previous quarter, after registering a 7.9, you know, nearly 8% GDP growth in that quarter, uh, right now the reports are that China's growth has slowed down to 4.9%. So a three-point drop there. And so that that's almost due solely to the slump in the real estate section of their economy. That's It's around, it's around a fourth of their entire economic growth, when you're looking at them, is their real estate market. And so... There is some slowdown here. The question is how slow. That 4.9% is below expectations. Uh, everything that I saw had it closer to the 5% range. So being below 5 is a disturbing indicator there because it suggests things are weaker than maybe China is suggesting. And so if you have this default here, what happens from there? In the Financial Times, they had an op-ed by Kevin Drum, the former Prime Minister of Australia, and he is an expert on things related to China, and he wrote his column that sort of laid out the options before the Chinese Communist Party and its leader, uh, Xi Jinping. And here's Drum's breakdown of the Financial Times. He says, so what is China likely to do now? Beijing's policy options are threefold. Bankrupting Evergrande to send a message to the rest of the sector. Two, propping it up because it is simply too big to fail. Or three, facilitating an orderly distribution of assets. Xi's political instincts may well be to allow Evergrande to face the music and fail. He sees all forms of speculative investment, particularly in property, in Marxist terms, namely as belonging to the, quote, fictitious economy, which crowds out investment in the real economy of manufacturing, technology, and infrastructure, sectors that will seal China's global economic dominance. Quote, houses are for people to live in, not to speculate on, he told the 19th Party Congress in 2017. This view is counterbalanced by an anxiety that allowing Evergrande to fail may trigger a cascading effect across not only the property sector, but the banking institutions that currently finance its gargantuan levels of debt. Fortunately, China has institutional experience in dealing with such crises. In 2018, the private insurance group Ang Bang was brought, was brought under state control and restructured after its collapse with more than $320 billion in liabilities. The regional lending bank, Boshang, was allowed to go bankrupt last year after racking up $32 billion in debt, and $26 billion in public funds was used to help rescue creditors at an average repayment rate of under 60%. And he goes through some others here of, of, of different scenarios where these co- different companies were were bailed out to some extent or another by the Chinese party. And then he says, based on these precedents, the most likely outcome for Evergrande is an orderly distribution of assets to a mix of state and private buyers. This would ensure that people get the houses that they have made a deposit for, creditors are paid, and domestic bondholders skate through with just a minor haircut, while international bondholders are likely to see a comparatively bigger loss. 
that may deal with the immediacy of the Evergrande problem, but if the party continues to forcefully deleverage the property and finance sectors, it could be just the beginning. Already, we've seen another mid-sized real estate developer, Fantasia Holdings, fail to make a $206 million bond payment, and another, Modern Land, has asked to defer a $250 million payment. Evergrande's failure could already be spreading. It could be difficult to replicate an orderly redistribution of assets across the entire property sector for every struggling firm. If the sector significantly slows or contracts, the implications for overall economic growth would be serious. It comes on top of an already declining levels of business confidence in China produced by Xi's tightening of regulatory and ideological controls on the private sector and his parallel pivot towards the state. The implications for the global economy from such a scenario are very real. China represented 28% of all global growth between 2013 and 2018, twice that of the United States. A significantly slowing Chinese property market would mean slower global growth with a particular impact on commodities that service construction. This is why the world should have a profound interest in how Beijing handles the lead leveraging of its property in finance sectors. It represents far more than a contest between Xi's ideology and China's economic reality. So I thought that was a great column by him. And I, one of the reasons that I also wanted to, to highlight his his column, apart from where the re, um, just the part where I think he's right on a lot of this, I also wanted to highlight the fact that this is an Australian perspective and he, one of the things that you find out when you're looking at some of these these construction and real estate investments in, in China is that they purchase a lot of commodities from places like Australia. So if you need steel or other building materials, they're having to bring them in to China to make these buildings, and they're getting them from places like Australia. And so you get these regional just you know supply chains because that's where you know Australia is over there, and so. They, in their economy, if this entire real estate thing goes under, they would be impacted because their construction side firm and their exports would be impacted because one of their major buyers would all of a sudden be out of the market. So there is this this unique perspective that they have on this because they're helping supply some of this. In the United States, our impacts here are a little bit different. Ours are going to be more monetarily based with our various firms being invested to various extents in these sectors. And then, of course, the supply chain, which impacts just about every part of the economy. So I think he's right here. I think Kevin Drum, the former prime minister of Australia, I think he's right in noting that the most likely scenario is that China is going to try to split Evergrande up into distinct components and force various firms to buy things up. That would lessen the shock to the overall system and allow things to continue on. This really is the original playbook for what the United States did when it came to handling the Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch meltdown. Um, they, they, they worked with Bank of America because Bank of America stepped in to take over Merrill Lynch because it was also in, 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 going to go under. Uh, and then Lehman Brothers were the ones who couldn't find the buyer. They were the ones who they tried to get Bank of America to step in up to, and step up to the plate to buy them out too. But they were already taking on, you know, Bank of America, that is, was already taking on Merrill Lynch and had no interest in also taking on Lehman Brothers. And there was no one else who was willing to take Lehman Brothers. So that left Lehman with no one to dance with in the end. They ended up collapsing and going under, and that ended up triggering the rest of the sector as well. So the question is, 
what happens to the rest of the Chinese real estate sector. There's already parts of Evergrande that have been sold off. The question is, if they truly do default, what happens here? And what happens if some of these other companies start defaulting here as well? Because the threat here, the contagion threat, is not one company going other. It's all of them. And in, if it's just one company, it's it's one kind of problem to deal with. But if it's all of them, you're dealing with a whole other ball of wax. So you kind of have to figure out what's happening on that front. And so... Uh, What's happened, one of the updates that did happen over this past week, is that China's version of the Federal Reserve Bank, theirs is called the People's Bank of China, or the PBOC, they have tried to ease fears by saying the following, and this is from a Wall Street Journal report, and it said, China's central bank sought to ease concern about the potential contagion from China Evergrande Group's debt crisis, saying the risk of developers' problems spilling over into the financial system was controllable. The central bank added that Evergrande's problems are an individual phenomenon and that land and housing prices have remained stable, which he said were signs of a generally healthy real estate industry. The central bank hasn't directly addressed Evergrande's challenges since the developer fell behind on dollar bond payments last month, though it is said it would support the housing market. In August, it and the other financial regulators summoned Evergrande executives in a meeting, telling them the company needed to resolve its debt issues without destabilizing the property and financial markets. So you know, you know, we're focusing on this now. In August, we were looking at other things here, but this is something that China's known that's been happening for for a while, and so. We've got this specific statement from the PBOC on Evergrande and. If you're kind of looking through that Wall Street Journal report, it's really a lot of vague platitudes about the rest of the economy and how things are going to be controlled and everything is okay. Uh, we know, however, that China's economy has slowed down. You know, one quarter from quarter to quarter, you're talking 7.9 to 4.9. That's quite a steep drop. And we know it's mostly from this real estate sector. And we know other companies are struggling here, here. So that sort of undercuts the PBOC's messaging here. If, if you're saying everything's fine and it's just singular to this company, that would make a lot more sense if you didn't know all these other companies were struggling and there are already others who are looking at default potentially too. So I think Kevin Drum here gives the best economic case for what China should be up to in this situation. They're trying. We already see they're trying to control the messaging and say that it's only one company and no one else should worry. That's the economic case for action here. So, and I said at the top, there's three here. You have the economic things people are doing, you have the political, and you have the cultural. Um, the political situation and the political maneuvering that could be happening here, along with everything happened here in the economic and real estate sector, is trickier. And, and here's why. We're about a year out from the Chinese Communist Party's leadership meeting. And this is where they shake up the ranks. And they, they, and they start plugging in all new leadership for another five years. This is where people get their promotions. You've got all kinds of stuff. And this is where also you decide whether the head of the party, in this case Xi Jinping, you decide whether or not he's going to have another five-year term. It's expected that he's going to have another five-year term. This would be his third. And that would be unprecedented but it's also expected to happen by everyone. So given that this is communism, coups are always possible, so you always kind of have to factor that in at the back of your mind. But he is expected to take on that third term. They changed the laws to ensure that he could do this because before he couldn't. 
So that's kind of where we are here. He is leading up to this moment in, uh, I believe it's next November or next fall in 2022, where this is going to come up and he's got to figure out how to maintain this power. So you, you have kind of have to jump here and some of the other news sources are available. So one of them is The Diplomat. It's a foreign policy magazine. And so it, just, it went into depth about what's coming up with this. Uh, I'll link to this piece because it's, it's great. It sort of breaks down everything that's happening. Um, but it is also from December 2020. So it has nothing to do with the fallout of what we're witnessing right here. So they're basically doing this about two years ahead of time, talking about everything that's expected leading up to this meeting. So here, here's the paragraphs that they have here. In 2022, the Chinese Communist Party will hold its 20th National Party Congress, shaking up the top echelon of Chinese politics. There are two extreme scenarios for the institutional transition of supreme leadership in 2022. Either Xi Jinping stays for a third term, unprecedented in recent history, or he is dismissed by internal CCP factions and his political power neutered before October 2022. Whichever of these transpires, there is a huge interlocking institutional framework of lower-level cadres vying for various stages of political career promotion. So notice the two extreme things there. It's either he maintains it, or the party tries to neutralize his power ahead of time. They continue, The consolidation of power under Xi Jinping has weakened the explanatory power of institutional analysis of CCP cadre movements. However, the chairs within that party structure are still stable, dependent variables. The chairs that form the institutions of the power may change slightly, but they are very stable orbits. The reality of the coming decade of China's 2022 to 2032 political history will play out in the shadow of this institutionalized system. However, the tides of political fortune can swing very quickly at the top of elite Chinese politics. He says here, I do not think that Xi Jinping will be the general secretary of the CCP in October 2022. Consider that Xi Xi was very nearly removed from power in March 2020, and that his own rise to power was on the back of a failed coup. If Xi Jinping will no longer be the leader of the CCP in November 2022, it will not be because of institutional gray rules that would require the chairman of the party to serve only two five-year terms or age restrictions, but more because his position had become so untenable to the factions within the party who were capable of changing history. Wang Kishan is an obvious power broker, defensive pivot to watch, being a parental figure to many in the CCP hierarchy. So we're sort of getting into the thick weeds here of Chinese politics, trying to figure out exactly what could happen here. And of course, this is an entirely different situation because it's communism. You've got all that playing out in the background. So the the basic point here is you have the initial question up here. Does he stay in power? Does Xi stay in power? That last name, though, and the reason that I'm highlighting this this piece in The Diplomat, not just because it, it states a lot of what things you need to know about this, but it's that last name, Wang Kishan. That stood out to me because the Wall Street Journal ran a report last week about how Xi Jinping and the CCP were starting a corruption investigation of the country around this Evergrande deal. And the title of that report, or... In the gist of that report, just really quick, it named Wang Kishan as one of the potential people to be investigated as a part of this. And so the title of 
That Wall Street Journal report was Xi Jinping scrutinizes Chinese financial institutions' ties with private firms. Inspections aim to ensure full Communist Party control over what is seen as the lifeblood of the economy, say some people familiar with the plan. So they are laying out kind of what they're going to do here. The CCP and the Chinese outlets are all reporting on this and describing this new corruption investigation as being done on economic or corruption grounds. So the Wall Street Journal had this nugget in it. First, they describe what's happening here. They said that these these people said individuals who are suspected of having engaged in inappropriate dealings are likely to be formally investigated by the Communist Party and potentially charged later, while any entities found to have gone astray would be disciplined. The leadership would also use these findings from the inspectors to decide whether to slash the compensation of executives at these state financial juggernauts. Some officials at the Ministry of Finance, which funds big state finance institutions, have been pushing for the cut as compensation in the financial sector is seen as too high compared to that of other industries. At a September 26th meeting aimed at immobilizing the troops ahead of the new inspections, Zhao Li, uh, Lehi, I think that's how you pronounce it, current head of the anti-corruption body said, or current head of Mr. G's anti-corruption body, said the inspectors in charge of examining the 25 institutions will thoroughly search for any political deviations. Note that phrase there, political deviations. So this is a corruption thing in economic matters, but they're looking for political deviations. So you have to jump down a little bit to find this next piece, which is the most important part of this piece. And they say, Mr. G's goal, some officials said, is to make sure the party exerts full control over the economic lifeblood of the country, preventing the financial sectors captured by big private businesses and other power players that threaten the state's influence. I think you can read that as threatening him. Details of anti-corruption probes are often murky. During his early years in power, Mr. Z used wide-ranging used a wide-ranging campaign to both clean up the party plagued with corruption and to take down or sideline political rivals to secure his hold on power. The financial sector is known within China as the power base of Vice President Wang Qishan who gained prominence while running state-owned China Construction Bank Corp. in the 1990s and for years had installed people close to him in important positions in state-banked financiers, including the Chinese China Construction Bank. While serving as Mr. Xi's anti-graft czar during the leader's first term, Mr. Wang largely avoided investigating the private sector while he pursued probes into other parts of the economy. But the financial risk in China kept building up, in part because of aggressive lending by state banks to some well-connected corporate high flyers. Mr. Wang's political influence has diminished in recent months. A longtime aide of his was charged in August with taking more than $71 million in bribes. Mr. Wang has had connections to some of the financial firms that are now facing scrutiny, according to people with knowledge of the plan. China Construction Bank, for example, helped finance the conglomerate HNA Group's acquisitions overseas. HNA, whose chairman, Cheng uh, Feng, is a former aide to Mr. Wang, last year declared bankruptcy under crushing debt load. And so... Mr. Shen recently has been detained for suspected criminal offenses, and the China Construction Bank's lending to HNA is expected to be part of the new round of inspections, people said. So that is a long description, 
to basically drive home one point. When he first consolidated power during his first term, Xi Jinping used these anti-corruption probes to get rid of his opposition. And now, a year out from this exact same vote where he's going for an unprecedented third term, we have another anti-corruption probe. And this time, it looks like he's weakening one of his direct competitors, his vice president in this case, the guy who is connected to all of these companies, who has the financial side and also works in the construction side of this real estate side of the market that is now under heavy scrutiny. So you have one of the key power brokers here, according to Foreign Policy Watchers, at the center of one of the main areas where the anti-corruption probes are focused. And so you've got also got this Evergrande fallout along with you know the rest of the real estate sector. Again, a fourth of the economy could be under investigation for the next year leading up to this leadership vote. It's really not that hard to, to come up with a playbook and imagine sort of like the following. Xi Jinping and his base of power blame rival factions for the wrecking of the economy and enriching themselves in this part of the sector. And then they proceed to jail those people for bad political beefs, beliefs, bad uh, wrecking different parts of this economy, of making people not be able to have their houses. And so he uses corruption probe to get rid of all these people, say he still has to clean up the party, takes on his third term, becomes a champion of the people in the process. That political move is one that uses the economic fallout to build a stronger political position more than a year out from a major vote. Again, everyone's expecting Xi to take another five-year term. The question is, is whether or not there's going to be enough factions that exist to kick him out. But if you toss all those factions in jail and then reward the people who are willing to stick with you, all of a sudden you have reinforced your position both in the party and in the country. I think you really have to take into fact that that could be one of the main driving principles here. Everyone's looking at the economic fallout, but the political probably matters more. There's also a third thing happening here, and I mentioned this in the top two. There's this cultural thing happening in the background. Uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have focused on banning certain cultural aspects and trends within the society he doesn't like. Um, It's a pretty haphazard list of things to do. You may have seen stories about how China has banned the Bible and the Quran and various apps that people have on their phone that have those on there. They've also um, they've pushed LinkedIn so hard that LinkedIn, the social media network, has left the country. Um, one of the odder reports I think I've ever seen. But um, it's those sorts of things. And it's, it's sort of this cultural thing where he, he's doing this. Uh, Tanner Greer, I thought, offered a pretty good explanation for why all this is happening. Because this is more of a cultural thing. It's not really an economic or political thing, although I do think it does have political ramifications. Uh, but Tanner says the following. Uh, he's talking in, the, in this story about, about how the Chinese are, are trying to crack down on various things. And he says, of, of the arguments they're using, he says, very similar rhetoric has been used to describe the cultural crackdowns as on video games or online fan clubs. In an interview posted on the Central Commission on Discipline Inspections website this summer, um, one of the people there blames um, both on the irrational expansion of 
they're they're basically trying to blame the expansion of these things happening in China. And one of the things he talks about is the irrational expansion of capital. And he argued that, quote, fan culture is capital using its power to create a consumption culture and to manipulate youth spending habits and influence public culture. Under this framework, the popularity of video games, celebrity rankings, K-pop forums, and the like are an unnatural social contagion. The instant gratification provided by their consumption hijacks healthy development and produces disgusting excess. In this sense, computer games or fan forums are similar to narcotics, but worse, for narcotics are illegal, peddled in the shadows under the threat of death. Today's addictions, in in contrast, have billion-dollar conglomerates behind them. But the video game developers, executives, and admin are only doing what they're incentivized to do. Within the system, there is nothing to stop these conglomerates from enmeshing their citizens even further in addiction. And outside forces needed to halt the madness, and Xi Jinping has decided to be that force. So basically, you know, if you look around at our culture and you see some of the just... You see the fan cult. You see people, you know, doing the fan stuff on movies. You have the video games. Uh, you you see people getting into coffee. It's it's coffees or it's basically anything like that. These side hobby things that in America we just see as hobbies. In China's culture, you see people become obsessed about them, and so what they're trying to do is limit that impact. Uh, one of the things they've done is they've limited the hours that you can play video games, for example. It's sort of controlling these aspects of people's lives in order to produce a, quote, better culture. And I do think there's probably some cultural arguments that that the party has talked itself into that need there needs to be this crackdown here. But what I would also say about all these things is that about these sort of cultural points, uh, and I think that they are also part of the overall political and economic calculation here, too. Because... Now think about it here for a second. The the people who run in China, the people who run these companies that, that throw out things like video games or these fan clubs over for bands and things like that, the people who run those, they're going to be massively popular in China. They're going to be running these really profitable companies, much like the Evergrande's of the world. And in China... The big wealthy types are dangerous because they're far more Western than they are communist, or what you would consider, what the Chinese Communist Party would consider to be an upstanding Chinese citizen. And so those types, though they fall outside the real estate sector, are also dangerous politically because they could form factions not loyal to Xi Jinping. And so he may be looking at these groups and saying, well, we're going to crack on down on these on a cultural basis, but in the process, this is going to help me to rein in this side of the culture in order to have a better political base. That way I don't have any loose threads. There's not any of these big names out there making bukus of money. And also I can, in the process, make this an argument of making my culture better. I think that could be part of what's happening here, too. So, you know, China is obviously not communist in the same way that the Soviets were with the USSR. They've tapped into the potential of markets. They have a booming, you know, economy with billions of people. But even with that, politics and the rules of politics, 
those surpass sort of every system. You've got to find, figure out a way to build your 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 coalition of people that keep you in power, and then you have to figure out how to circumnavigate, or in the cases of authoritarian regimes, get rid of your rivals. It doesn't really matter what system that you have on top of that. Those are still the things that you're trying to do. And if all reports say that he wants to retain power, I don't have any reason to doubt any of those reports because they've been reported for a long time. So the question is, ultimately, how does Xi Jinping maintain his power and maintain his hold? Evergrande and some of these crackdowns provide a path forward for accomplishing just that task. Maybe, you know, in the process, he offers a rationale that paints a picture of why he's doing everything. But all these explanations, I think this applies to both the economic rationalizations and the cultural ones. All of those offer either a pre- or post-hoc rationalization of actions that ultimately entrench his power base in the country and within the Communist Party that runs the state. And if everything you do, whether with a cultural basis or an economic basis, if everything in the end also entrenches your personal political power, we probably need to ask why did you do this in the first place? So where does this bring us back? We've kind of, you know, chased several rabbit trails here. Where does this bring us back? If you look at the investment money internationally and how it's watching, watching this play out, it is all sort of doing the same thing. Everyone's expecting China to act on economic self-interest grounds and focus on protecting their economy, much in the same way that the United States did with Lehman Brothers. Now, ultimately, you know, saving Lehman Brothers didn't end up working, but people are expecting that kind of effort from China. And since China doesn't actually have to pass any legislation through something like the U.S. Congress, which complicates any type of rescue plan, most international money is expecting this to go much smoother in China than it did the United States because if Xi Jinping wants to do something, he just orders it and then it's done. But consider this. What if economic self-interest is only one factor of the equation? What if these other reasons that I've offered up, you know, the cultural, and even more importantly here, the political ramifications at stake, what if those things override economic self-interest? If Xi thinks he can blame the worst of this fallout on his rivals to maintain power, then why not take that path? He can use this path to clean everyone up and clean everything up on the backside. And then in the meantime, you know, he can do his thing where he's doing the saber-rattling at Taiwan internationally to appear strong in front of the feckless Joe Biden and the West. And then domestically, he can arrest his opponents for wrecking the economy. In the process, he paints himself as the hero of the people for cleaning things up, which is no different from any other authoritarian regime of the past. You know, this is a very similar playbook to the Soviets, though they do this multiple times. And then, of course, it's also very similar to... Vladimir Putin, who uses these kinds of storylines and narratives in the media uh, locally all the time. Now, I'm not going to. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not an expert in China, not even by a long stretch. But the politics at play in this make a lot of sense. And for all the talk about how Xi Jinping is a noble and the CCP is a closed box, all of which is true, there do appear to be some threads you can pull on here and find some possibilities. I think politics makes sense here, mainly because when you look at the history of communist and Marxist regimes, this is kind of their M.O. This is kind of what they do. They focus on saving themselves politically. 
before they focus on saving things economically. Now, we're going to find out more about this, you know, once the Evergrande default takes place. Maybe China aces this and convinces everyone that it wasn't a big deal and, and you know, nothing happens. And, you know, I just spent the last couple of weeks studying all this for nothing. That is certainly possible. But as I said last week and even mentioned in the newsletter, I can't help but shake a feeling that they're going to botch this just like they did the pandemic. The political machinations here may seem well-planned and diabolical, but it still requires some competence to pull off. And very few communist regimes have ever had that ever had that kind of confidence. So we're going to find out here. Keep an eye on the Evergrande default news and watch how China responds to everything and watch the markets responding domestically and abroad. We're going to learn a lot about that over the next few weeks and months. So that's kind of what to watch out for there. That's all I've got for this week. Uh, the light item this is the reason why I'm going to be struggling to sleep. The Atlanta Braves won their second game of the NLCS on a walk-off. They won their first game on a walk-off, too. It was astounding. Both times in the ninth inning. And they did they did this both times. So, you know, in back-to-back games. This, so here, this is the call from the Braves game from Major League Baseball. That, and, you know, MLB, they, they've had a spectacular postseason so far. Uh, if you've missed some of it, you've really missed out on some good games. Uh, but this is the call in the second game. Watched it live. It was spectacular. Here it is. I'm thinking of Craig Kimbrell with the Braves, Zach Britton with the Orioles. No manager will ever be caught again with their closer in the bullpen in a big moment. In a situation like this, Rosario, not a lot of success. As you see, the arms real quick for the Dodgers. Really good arms the whole way through. They're going to have to play a little bit shallower because Danby Swanson's got to be off. Rosario, the last night, faced Jansen, so got to see him. Uh, just a little thing. If there is a base hit, Ron Washington will be sending the runner. <laughs> That's a given, <laughs> especially with two outs. Shift is on. Three infielders on the right side. Taylor, the lone infielder on the left. Again, anything on the ground, even in the shift, you have to dive and keep it in front of you or to the side of you. Cannot let it go into the outfield. Anything on the ground. Eddie Rosario, three hits tonight against Kenley Jansen. And first ball swinging. Oh, oh. and it gets through. And here comes the winning run. Swanson scores, and the Braves win again in their final at bat. that kept the Dodgers in this game. But a ball at 105 miles an hour, 
He tried to flash the leather to pick that ball from Rosario Frenchy. It didn't work. Rosario, an aggressive hitter, goes after the first pitch a lot. And right here gets probably the best pitch he was going to see that whole A.B. And for the fourth time tonight, smokes it. Again, traded for Eddie Rosario, a player that you knew was not going to be able to play for you right away. The dividends have started to pay off. Tough chance for Seager. Walking. Went for the backhand. Missed it. Bedlam in Atlanta. Pouring out of the dugout. And Jansen's outing. Last one pitch. Brian, the Braves have held serve. They were up 2-0 in last year's games. They were up 3-1 in last night, year's games against the Dodgers. They're going to Dodger Stadium where the Los Angeles Dodgers won 58 times this season. Far from over. Last time the Braves had back-to-back walk-offs in the postseason 1991 World Series. So there it is. There was the call. Just astounding all around. Just an unbelievable scene. Uh, I do. You should go and watch the video of it because it was quite. It was something to watch. Uh, you know, it's going to be on all this week. So make sure to check out and watch the Braves. I'm sure they will find another way to make it interesting since they've gone second game in a row. They've gone to the, to the ninth inning tied up, and they, they've required their last at bat to figure it out. Who knows what's going to happen here in the in this next series when they when they go to Dodger, to, you know, the Dodger Stadium. Who knows what's going to happen? So, but it should be good. It should be good. It's been a good. So in in that second walk off there, they the Dodgers had literally just brought out their their closing pitcher, their closer, and he threw one pitch. And that was the pitch you heard. Just one pitch. They thought they were bringing out their ace to lock things down for that inning, and it was over, right then and right there. So that's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me at the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next calls on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you'd like to enjoy it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.